As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Welcome to the SUPFM podcast with me, Simon Hutchinson. Every week, I chat with interesting people from the SUP world or to people who can help us, the paddlers of the SUP tribe, to improve and to maximise our own experiences and our love of both the sport and the water. Every episode is designed to inspire or to help you get a deeper immersion into the sport through my conversations with leading athletes, scientists, explorers, TED speakers and New York Times best-selling authors. And not forgetting some of the many insanely inspiring distance paddlers we've routinely had on the show. This week, I speak to someone who I've been hunting down for a chat for a while now. Blue Mind is a term which is known worldwide and the man who made the connection between all the benefits that water gives us and who introduced that combination of words is Wallace J. Nichols, the author of the internationally known book Blue Mind. It's made an impression on so many people, including myself, that I had to ask him about where stand-up paddleboarding fits into the Blue Mind equation and whether its popularity since the start of the pandemic is because as a sport and as a pastime, it delivers on so many different levels. Here he is. Hi, Jay. Welcome to SUP FM. It's so good to finally be with you uh, for this conversation. It's overdue. Yeah, well, it's great. And uh, we were talking off air. I um, harassed you on email for quite some time to get you on. And uh, it's a great honor to have you on the podcast because your book, Blue Minds, has been a really influential one for so many people across the world. And it's been a particular favorite amongst our listeners to the show. And uh, we covered it in our first book club episode. And there aren't many episodes and interviews which don't at some point touch on some of the subjects that you raise directly or indirectly in your book. So it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. And thanks. Thanks for your persistence. And I'm I'm definitely a harassable person. So thanks for sticking with it. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure. Um, so so with this question, I, I feel like I'm immediately treating the book and yourself in a really superficial way. But if you were describing the book to someone at a party who maybe hadn't come across it, how would you describe it to them? Well, you know, the the, the book's called Blue Mind, and, and the phrase is, is just, a, well, it's just a pair of words that describes something that I think we've all felt uh, throughout our lives, but couldn't quite explain. So the book is is an attempt to start to explain this feeling that we get when 
when we're with water in in any of its forms and in any of the activities that are available to do, whether it's a shower or a bath in your home or jumping in a pool or, you know, paddling uh, and all the other things we can do on boats and underwater and scuba and diving, all, all, the, all those things. And there's a, a unique feeling that water brings. And um, I've felt it my whole life. I've been fortunate in that way uh, and wanted to, de- to describe it as a, from the per- perspective of scientists, of, of a scientist, I guess. Um, so that's really what the book is about, is that feeling. And um, there have been a lot of books about the, the way water feels, but most of them have been more in the realm of, of poetry and prose rather than the science of the feeling. And so I guess that's what, that's what may make it unique. Um, but it's caught on that, that the words Blue Mind have, have become useful in the way that I'd hoped um, in, in naming this, this mind state that we, we encounter um, when we're near, in, on, or underwater. And that's great. It's great to be able to be able to give something a name because then we can talk about it better and we can value it more and we can uh, prescribe it and protect it. Uh, mm. prioritize uh, that feeling because it's it's so important so uh, that's not that wasn't short enough i wish i had given you a shorter answer at that uh well, it's that elevator book. pitch but um, yeah. long elevator right yeah well uh, yeah I, I realized it was a challenge because there's so much in there but as you say it's been hugely influential across the world and it continues to make it a, an impact and and I think, obviously, with the difficult times that we've had recently across the world, I don't know whether this shows up in the sales figures, but um, it certainly seems to have had an impression. And, and as you say, Blue Mind certainly entered the, the terminology as a particular thing. And also, it appears to be, rather than just the book, it, it seems to be sort of changing into a bit of a movement internationally. But, but what I want to do is to talk, first of all, how you connected the dots in an area which is one of those secrets that was kind of hidden in plain sight. And also to talk about some of the strands of your book, which feed into the, the growth of paddleboarding and the culture of, of paddleboarding. But before we get into the actual detail of the book, I'd be failing in my duty as a host for this uh, stand-up paddleboard podcast if I didn't point out that, that SUP seems to be mentioned pretty frequently in the book. And because it was published in 2014, and I'm guessing it, it took a few years to write it, it seems you may have been exposed to it fairly early. So, so what's your paddleboarding history and, and how do you prefer to get to grips with water these days? Yeah, I, I, I try to do everything I can. And especially since um, since working on Blue Mine, it, it's sort of, I guess it's kind of, kind of handy that I can call uh, stand-up paddleboarding research but uh, and justify it in, in, in an additional way um, but I would never I wouldn't call myself a pro or an expert but I, I do enjoy paddleboarding quite a bit and any any chance I get to go out on um, waterways that I visit I find it to be one of the best ways um, to explore a new waterway and uh, and and meet people and, and chat with them about mm. their water and and get out and you know, get a good workout, but really just 
see things. And I, you know, I like, I like canoeing and, and kayaking and like being in the water, but there's, there's just such a nice uh, vantage on, on a sup that you get. And, uh, and then the social aspect of it mm. really enjoy, which is unlike swimming when you're, your face is in the water. You're not having, you're usually not having a great conversation or scuba diving. You know, it's, it's nonverbal, but you know, when you can, when you can move along the water and, and uh, have a conversation with people, um, really enjoyable and such a great way to explore all bodies of water, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I was definitely aware. I mean, before, before the, the industry really, exploded was maybe an early adopter of the of the technology and very aware that it it was extremely useful and certainly wrote about it and um but it you know i thought a lot about boats and you know i, I include a stand-up paddleboard kind of in the you know as you know maybe one of the earliest kinds of boats you know the the early um canoes that people stood up in you know made of reeds um essentially a stand-up paddleboard um mm -hmm. those are some of the probably the first boats uh and then obviously we've got some very large boats as well but so i kind of working with with the boating world i always include a include the sups kind of as the as the proto boat you know it's got a, it's got a real ancient history and i know sort of laird hamilton and dave kalama have got sort of modern kudos for for pushing it um, as a sport but yeah you're absolutely right there were sups in in africa and all across the world obviously particularly um around the pacific yeah, but interesting you said uh, as a marine biologist it's um it's a good excuse to sort of get out there on the water and you can obviously see lots there we had a team on from the university of portsmouth in the last series and uh, they were looking at uh, fitting technology onto a, a sup fin to be able to take uh, water samples on there and I know that uh, there's been some of that activity with Chris Burtish when he did the Atlantic crossing so I think there are definitely opportunities to to help assess the state of the oceans and and certainly that would be something that would be of interest to any stand-up paddleboarder I think definitely well yeah that that idea of you know marine scientists on on paddleboards it's um just a higher angle, you know, that, that you just, you just see more, you can see down into the water better than when you're, when you're kind of down low at closer to the surface. And, you know, I, I've studied sea turtles for a long time and, you know, we would sometimes get out on kayaks or, or sit on top kayaks and, and paddle and, and catch the turtles and sometimes have to jump on them. So being able to maybe be on a stand up paddle board and paddling and, seeing the turtles and paddling and then the ability to jump off of your board on, um, and grab a turtle and tag it and measure it do all that it's kind of i haven't done that but it sounds like a good plan i'd like to yeah that's fantastic so so um by way of a slight diversion um you live i know on a on a beautiful stretch of the californian coast there which is particularly known for its marine life and uh, i stayed for a week not too far away from you in a place called moss landing where i know that there's a sort of marine biology sort of research station um nearby just just give us a bit of a taste of of that incredible coastline and the sort of wildlife that, that you can see from uh, from the beaches there 
Yeah. So the Monterey Bay is, is, um, is protected. It's a, a national marine sanctuary and, and the protections through the years have worked and, you know, it's gone from being pretty beat up, you know, like a lot of places overfished and, and, and that industry and, and others, uh, the agriculture industry, just sort of treating the, the coastal waters rather poorly. Um, but since then with, with the protections, we've seen, um, really a lot of the a lot of the wildlife making a great comeback still a lot of work to do but um, the kelp forests and all of the diversity they hold and marine mammals and um, got you know sea otters uh, just a range of of fish species and kelp and algae species and seabirds and uh, it really is kind of a an ocean serengeti if you will and uh, so on any given day, you know, depending on the weather and how far offshore you go, you're just kind of just exploding with life. Um, even leatherback sea turtles migrate into the bay all the way from Indonesia to feed on the jellies that are abundant there. So um, sometimes the visibility is very poor because there's so much plankton, but it's that plankton that mm -hmm. makes the life just explode, you know, and, and creates that that rich food chain. So um, and even, even in the coastal waters, you, you know, might be out paddling and, you know, you pass by a, you know, a couple of otters or a pot of dolphins and, um, or paddle in, into a kelp forest and get out for a swim. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a really, really wonderful place to call home. Uh, for now at least yeah yeah it's a stunning place so we took a few weeks on a bit of a road trip and we drove from las vegas um through and went to yosemite and so on and then spent a week in, in a beach house um down in monterey bay and we were exhausted from the journey we sort of stepped out and onto the beach uh with a coffee and and there was a pod of dolphins doing their thing so that was a, a spectacular welcome to uh to that area so absolutely love it so clearly you love the water from a, a very early age jay so what were your sort of early experiences of water when you were growing up that, that um made such an impression on you you know i i'm I, I i've learned that i my experience is not everyone else's experience and i and i it is has been certainly a privilege to learn water-related skills. I can't really remember learning to swim, but I, I must have at a very young age and always just preferred to be in the water than on land. And part of that was um, I was adopted and had lots of questions about life and origins. And I stuttered badly as a kid and was kind of an introvert. And so the water was my happy place. You know, I didn't really have to worry about people talking to you underwater, kind of to, to our earlier point. Uh, people don't ask questions underwater and it's quieter and the things that might be distracting or overwhelming um, in one's life just kind of disappear when you're in the water or on the water. And I, I, I knew that intuitively and was pulled towards it. It's probably why I became a marine biologist. So that I could align my my career with that feeling, and I I imagine there are others uh, in the world who have done the same thing, who have 
maybe chosen a place to live close to water because it it gives them what they need or chosen a career um you know in in some kind of aquatic industry because it it feels good and that was certainly the case for me and later on i i started questioning that um that tendency like what what was it about the water that when i was a kid that held me in the way that i needed to be held and what was it that led me to align my career with that feeling and i went looking i wanted to read about that and i went looking for a book uh, that would explain the science of that feeling and that i had as a kid and uh, i couldn't find a book <laughs> and i uh, tried to get some other people to write it so that i could read it and and utilize the ideas in my own conservation work and I, I failed to convince anyone to write write the book I wanted to read. That's how I ended up writing it. Not not because I um, set out in initially to to write it. I, I set out to read it, and it didn't exist. So, um, but I, you know, I think it, it's a it, it can, the idea stems from experience and very deeply personal, um, I, you know, therapeutic experiences that all the way back to childhood. Now, as a dad, I've tried to pass that on to my kids and it's, it works for them as well. They, if they're having a rough day. Um, they, they head to the, head to the water and in, in any, in any place we're traveling or at home uh, or even in, indoors. And they've, they've learned that and I can see it in, in their lives that it's been um, helpful for sure. It's kind of one of those universal things, isn't it? But just putting those pieces together, the effect on you and then observing um, other people and, and their behaviour with the water. And you share a story in the book, I think when you're an undergrad and you take a bunch of kids to the Sea of Cortez and they hadn't, they hadn't seen um, that expanse of water before. And there was a really special reaction to that once they'd sort of let go of their fear and sort of recognise the, the beauty. Um, could you just tell us a bit about that that experience? Because that was someone else experiencing it. Yeah, that um, when I was at University of Arizona working on my my doctorate, um, I met some of the leaders of the Tohono O'odham community, which is an, an indigenous group that outside of Tucson, and was working with with some of their youth, and we decided to take a a trip but kind of a pilgrimage for them because traditionally they would make a make the long walk from tucson the arizona area to the sea of cortez but uh, because of the border with mexico they had ceased doing that and so there's this generation of young people who were missing that that part of their culture and traditionally they would bring back salt and shells and and items that you would only find in the sea and bring that back to the desert. And so we kind of came up with this plan to take a group of kids um, to the ocean and none of them had seen it before. And uh, it was just really wonderful. And, you know, any, any group of kids seeing the ocean for the first time is, is a, is a great thing to be part of, but this had this extra layer of, um, 
of legacy and, and tradition uh, and practice that made it even more powerful. And, and the kids were, um, you know, certainly enthralled and overwhelmed and full of joy. And I, I remember sitting on the beach and uh, some of the, some of the young men had, they didn't own shorts, uh, you know, board shorts or swim trunks. And we were sitting on the beach getting ready to go in. They said, we don't have shorts. And so we, we got out a pocket knife and just cut the legs off our pants. And I just cut the legs off my pants too. Then I had a perfectly fine pair of board shorts ready to go and uh, cut our pants up and got in the ocean and taught them to snorkel. And remember one, one of the kids kept saying he couldn't see anything underwater. And I reminded him that he could open his eyes underwater because he had this mask on and that was the breakthrough. And then he just, was just completely blown away by the underwater life that he had just never, never witnessed. And then he just disappeared for the day, just exploring the tide pools and snorkeling around. And it's one of my favorite things to do really is um, whether it's snorkeling on a reef or going out at night and seeing a a sea turtle come out of the ocean and lay eggs. Um, As many times as I've done those things, every time, uh, I get to be a guide. Uh, it's like it's you relive it the first time it happened for you once more through the eyes of you know, people who are having that experience. And um, I think I, I can look back on that time with, with those those young people in, in Arizona and you know identify how much it how much I enjoyed it as well and uh, a commitment to feeling that feeling of uh, sharing blue mind essentially uh, with as many people as possible. And just in a very, I guess you could say in a very self selfish way, uh, I got, I get a lot out of that. So I, I do it a lot <laughs> mm. and it, it's uh, mutually beneficial uh, when it happens. So, um, but you know, we were, we were talking bef- before we started recording a bit about the idea that if, if you're one of the lucky people who has the skills and the access uh, to have a blue mind, it's sort of your responsibility to share it with those who, for whatever reason, uh, have barriers uh, in front of them. And the barriers could be perceptual, could be fear, but they could be physical barriers. Or it could be that their water is polluted and they can't do these things or they never learned to swim, but it's, it's on us to grow the circle, you know, and Mm. uh, teach others how to enjoy the water. I mean, it's, we're mostly water. Our planet is mostly covered with water and it's really not only uh, important to care about the water, but it's, um, it's the greatest source of joy and peace and a sense of freedom and romance and creativity that I know of. And so let's share it you know, mm-hmm. with, with others and, and the responsibility that goes with that uh, as stewards of the water um, so that we don't over, overrun places, you know, with, with our enthusiasm either. Exactly. Yeah. So that leads us very, very nicely on to the, the key things that I really wanted to, to talk to you about. And the reason why I found your book so powerful is it's helped to make 
a lot of things much clearer in my mind about stand up paddleboarding and a lot of the subjects that we talk about on this podcast because there are four really powerful topics that pop up both in the community and in the conversations that, that I have with our guests and, and they repeat time after time. So in no particular order, they are um, the mental and the physical health benefits of spending time around water, obviously in our case on um, on pedal boards. There's the a real devotion and enthusiasm to protect the water environment. And the third one, something that I call the aloha factor, but there is a spirit of, sort of kindness and support which exists at all levels of the sport. I know it exists in other um, water activities as well. And surprisingly enough, it also happens at the professional competitive level. And then finally, something which might be a result of of the first three is a really strong and a very quick addiction in the most positive way um, to the immediate sort of physical and mental benefits. Because it seems that people go from first-time paddlers and experimenters to fanatical enthusiasts really quickly. So I, th- I think you sort of com- comprehensively cover all of, of those. So so what I'd like to do to start with, and it's the thing that we talk most about, is uh, particularly the, the sort of mental and, and physical health aspects of, of water. And what where that was demonstrated most recently was around the time of, of lockdown. And when the release came, and the restrictions were, were lifted, everything went completely crazy in the SUP industry because everyone had a sort of instinctive desire to get in or um, onto the water. And they were driven by forces, which I can only think were, were inbuilt. And you talk a lot about those sort of primitive and evolutionary connections with the water. Could you just explain some some background about that sort of inbuilt drive for that to that level of connection yeah so there's there's something going on inside of all of us relative to water that is 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 innate intuitive not learned and that is simply a, a result of the fact that we all and by by we all i mean every living organism came from the water and evolved from the water and if we don't have water for a week there's no more us. We, we just dry out and die, and so we we have this um, need and ability to detect the sight and sound and 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 smell and taste of water, and then orient ourselves to it for our survival. And we share that with all all the other animals uh, and plants on Earth that are are non aquatic. Uh, and if you don't, if you, if you just wandered away from the water and forgot um, to bring some, you'd be in big trouble. And I think the, the best way that, that I found to illustrate it very simply, and it, it works on a podcast remarkably well, is um, if I'm in a room giving a lecture, let's just say it's a big lecture hall, thousand people uh, all seated, and I say into my microphone, I've asked my team to close and lock the doors and remove all of the water bottles from the room and you will get water back in three hours. And then I just pause. And then I said, did you feel that? Did your mouth get dry at the mere suggestion 
that there wouldn't be water for three hours, just for three hours. And then I point out that I don't have a team. It's just me. The doors are still open and your water bottle is exactly where you left it under your chair or in your hands or in your bag. Um, so if you were, had been observant and logical, you would have known that I was making up a story, but I, but your, your brain responds so quickly and, and, uh, conserves water and shunts it to your vital organs, your brain, your heart, and your lungs and stops salivating and your mouth goes immediately dry. Uh, that's, that's kind of like really the, the deep core thing that you're talking about with, you know, people instinctively said, I, I got to get on a paddleboard and save my life here. I'm, I'm going nutso and I, I need it. And so all living organisms on land have to figure out how to, um, stay connected to water and plants do it differently, obviously, because they're, they're generally not mobile. Um, but we all have to figure it out. And so we have that, um, tendency already built in and that it's on board and, and it's built into our senses. Now, modern humans, we call it uh, something else, right? We don't sit around talking about our evolutionary tendency towards, you know, uh, water. We talk about beauty. Mm. We talk about awe. We talk about wonder. Uh, we talk about real estate. We talk about art. Um, we make films. If you flip through a, a travel magazine, it's just full of water imagery in the ads and in, in the editorial sections. And so we have exploited this, this uh, love of water in lots of ways. If you buy a bottle of water, chances are there's some mountain spring scene or some blue splash of water graphics on it that's you know meant to signal to you that this is this is good for you um and it's almost almost cliche that people go to the water um to celebrate you know their love for a honeymoon or for um some kind of um, ceremony um or that if you can afford it you know you try to get a water view from where you live uh, or that's where you want to go vacation but all of it stems back to this deep water connection uh, that uh, you know we need it. We need it to survive. So fast forward to modern humans, and we're mostly never, never more than several steps away from a knob that we can turn that will have water coming out of it. Uh, modern modern life in a lot of places. Of course, there are places where people have to still walk long distance to um, to retrieve you know, sometimes even poor quality water. Um, but modern urban humans have access to, to, to water in a, in a very different way than our ancestors did. So we, you know, we don't stress about it as much, um, but there's still this, this skill set basically and this uh, emotional connection that is um, really in us for survival purposes so that you know if you see water it feels good and that's your body saying you know you're okay in this place um, and again the mere suggestion that you won't have water for three hours just you know elicits this this, this physiological response that's immediate it's like in milliseconds your body responds 
So I, I, I find all of that fascinating, but it's the underpinning of this bigger conversation that we're having uh, about the wellness benefits and the social benefits, um, the emotional benefits that, that come with these activities, uh, including paddleboarding. Maybe in some of the conversations I've had, it's a really powerful way of managing your your mental health. And um, over here, I'm not sure whether it's the same in the States. Everyone's very much got into the sort of Wim Hof um, cold water, which is another sort of a, an addition to water treatment. But uh, I spoke to a, a guy who was paddleboarding around the UK. And uh, by the way, this isn't to be recommended, but he, uh, for some reason, he ran out of his antidepressants. But, you know, he ended up not actually needing them on his journey. And, and he put that down to spending weeks and, and months um, on the sea. And I, I've heard sort of similar sort of anecdotal things where people had a sort of managed um, move away from antidepressants as a result of, of wild swimming. So, you know, there's lots of different ways water can benefit mentally. But you mentioned about the visual impact of water and that even pictures of water can have an effect on the, the brain and the body and the premium prices for, for properties which, which have a sea view. Um, but there are other aspects to it as well. So you've got the sound, you know, I mean, if you think about uh, if you're trying to get to sleep, you know, there aren't any or there aren't many um, relaxing soundtracks of traffic noise and jackhammers. It's all <laughs> waves and waterfalls and rain on a tent and all of that sort of stuff. And then you've also got the, you know, the, the feel of the water as well. And, and I think that's one of the things that is quite remarkable for stand-up paddleboarding because obviously when you're swimming, you can feel the water and so on. But when you've been paddleboarding for a while, you, you develop the skill to be able to, you know, stand up even in sort of quite aggressive chop. And it's almost like you're at one with the water. Your body just adjust to the movement and i know that that's you know one of the, the draws of, of surfing as well yeah i think that you point out that you know, you've got all all of your senses so in, in in the blue mind book i sort of unpack it and treat each of those senses separately but the reality is they work together i mean they're they're overlapping and mixing and informing each other and, and or sometimes misinforming each other for that matter Mm. Uh, but they, you, you don't you don't use one sense at a time typically, especially when you're when you're on the water. You're you're feeling the water. You're you're feeling your body. You're smelling and tasting the water. You're obviously hearing it, um, and you're you're looking around and seeing this expanse of blue or green or or brown or gray, whatever the the color happens to be. But it's that the sparkle on the water. So it's all all of your your senses working working together to have that experience, which kind of is what blue mind is. It's not any one of those experiences standing alone, but you know, this to understand the science, we kind of pull it all apart and then put it all back together uh, as, as the whole. And, um, and I think you make a good point. You know, you can, if you're um, using these activities to manage uh, your mental emotional health, you can't, always get on a paddleboard when you need it so we need to figure out ways to bring the experience in into the built environment and it, it turns out that music and art make the the awe and the wonder portable so you can bring 
water recordings with you on a train, <laughs> mm. uh, even though you can't bring the river on the train. Um, you can bring images, you can bring film, you can bring books and journals and poetry. Uh, you can hang a painting of the water you love on the wall. Um, and Or even better, a photograph that you took yourself because it has more, I'd say, more emotional valence uh, than some, you know, something more generic. Um, so, you know, making art, making recordings, making music about water so that you can bring it with you because you may need, you may need it to support your, your emotional mental health. Um, and, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who have at least been able to dial back on the dosage of the pharmaceuticals that they've been consuming, if not completely go off them. Um, and I'm always very careful in, in this, this realm. I'm, mm. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not prescribing um, that people stop taking medication. But what we've seen is, is the combination of more you know, traditional therapies and, and medicines with these, these blue mind activities, whether it's you know, cold water plunges and open water swimming, paddle boarding, diving, um, taking long baths, so on. Uh, can help people just really dial back on um, the chemi chemicals that they might be consuming um, for for their diseases and disorders and illnesses. So it's um it is pretty remarkable when you see it work, you know, and 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 people who are able to say, you know, I don't need to take these these pills uh, when I'm engaged in these activities. But they have them available in case they're in case they do. This is the Sup FM podcast with our guest Wallace J. Nichols, and we'll be right back. As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continue to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Now for the rest of my conversation with Wallace J. Nichols. It's quite a challenge as well. I mean, you mentioned about science. Clearly, you're, you're a scientist and, you know, a lot of the conversations about uh, the effects of water, I guess, to an extent, historically, have seemed maybe a little bit touchy-feely. But you talk in the book about neuroscience quite a bit and your book coincided with a, with a, a real improvement in our ability to be able to really measure the benefits of water because particularly through imaging technology we can see more of what's actually going on in the brain from outside so it's more scientific than just relying on anecdotes mm -hmm. could you share some of the more memorable studies that you've either taken part in or, or which had have proved the effects of water in, in a hard scientific way yeah so you know like you said that 
the old way of, of studying the brain was you could ask people questions while they were alive and believe what they told you, which is, you know, people, people don't always know what's going on inside their head. So that's kind of how psychology went on for a while. And then you, you could study their brain after they were done using it. Basically, after they passed, you could check out their brain and say, okay, maybe there were some anomalies, maybe some injuries, some differences, and map those back to the behavior of the individual while, while they were alive. So now we're able to look at the human brain while it's still in use. And that's done by taking you know, um, blood samples and saliva samples. It's done through neuroimaging, through fMRIs, or all, um, which measure oxygen as a proxy for brain activity. And then EEGs, which measure electricity. And even those technologies are advancing. Even recent years, we're getting more powerful um, neuroimaging technologies and waterproof mobile EEGs. So where that leads us is to a place where you could put on an EEG and hop on your paddleboard and go for a paddle and a scientist could record your brain activity. Or you could sit in a bath and have your brain watched. And so some of the some of the really cool research that's being done um, in, I guess you could say a controlled environment is in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's uh, a friend there, colleague named Justin Feinstein, who studies the brain uh, on water, but in these, in these float tanks. So basically it's a uh, hypersaline water about 18 inches deep that you float in but there's no light and no sound and his float tanks are extremely well built to remove any light or sound, any vibration of the building or traffic nearby. And uh, he, he basically puts people into a, a brain scanner and fMRI then has them do a float session. And then when they pop out, they get their brain scanned again and also get asked a whole bunch of questions. And, but while they're floating, they're also wearing, a waterproof EEG, and there's kind of a um, uh, night vision kind of radar going to see how their body basically looks at their, your skeleton. So uh, people aren't too freaked out about having their having an image of them floating naked. They, it's just a skeleton that's being mm. observed, and so they put all that together. And what they found is that therapeutically, floating in water is as good as or better than many, if not all, of the other kinds of therapies that are being used to treat anxiety disorders, uh, depression, distraction, post-traumatic stress, which are themes that this research center has been studying for, for quite a few years. So you can't run around always with a float tank, but... Um, there's a continuum of activities ranging from what I would call extreme blue mind to more, you know, milder applications of, um, of the idea. So jumping in cold water for a little while, floating in your bathtub, um, going for a paddle, they, they all have elements of extreme blue mind in them. So it's, there's this kind of continuum of activities. So when you're, when you're out on a paddleboard, you're, 
you're achieving some uh, uh, some aspects of of what you know we would say would be the ex- extreme version of it. Um, especially if you go for a swim off of your board, mm-hmm. and you're adding that element to it. Uh, you're out on the water, visually, auditorily, somatically. You're shifting into a, a different place. Your mind shifts into a different state. Uh, the stress hormones are decreasing. Um, the quote-unquote feel-good hormones are increasing. Um, and the things that had been distracting you uh, are, they're gone. The screens are gone. Uh, maybe the sounds of traffic and dogs barking and leaf blowers or whatever it is that distracts you on land, those go away. Uh, and your brain doesn't just go to sleep as you may imagine, it shifts into a different mode. And that's what we call blue mind, which is good at different things. You know, uh, directed attention is important, but we do so much of it on land. Um, mind wandering is also important, but we have a hard time doing that on land. Um, this psychologists call it soft fascination. It's, it's how the, the water holds your attention but it isn't throwing information at you um, like a forest does or like, like screens do. So you get this, um, you're, not, you're not bored by the water. It, it holds your attention, but it doesn't demand you to process language and Im- images and words. Um, and so we, we switch into this, this other state, which turns out is really good at problem solving and um, new creative ideas and it's good it's good at collaboration uh it's good at calm calm thinking uh, more more a more meditative approach mm. um, to figuring things out so we go back to the float tank what we see is creative people go to the float tanks to solve problems or to come up with new things um, musicians and artists and entrepreneurs uh Elite athletes go into float tanks to hit the big reset button and take their their get their mind out of the, this rumination place where they they spend so much time, you know, self self critical thinking and um, frustration about a bad game or a bad day or fear about the next day um, in the water. They get they get away from that and they get they get true mental rest. And so, you know, we seek out these activities such as paddleboarding to, 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 to get us there and onto that blue mind continuum. And um, so, that, yeah, I, I would say if you're into the research, go to Google Scholar and type in blue space or blue health mm-hmm. or aquatic therapy and apologies in advance. You'll, you'll lo- lose the better part of your day to <laughs> just exploring and reading and, and absorbing. Um, all that's going on you know, around the world now in this in this realm. Brilliant. Well, I couldn't think of a better way of spending an afternoon. So, so just sort of finally around the the mental health benefits is um, also the learning experience because one of the things that that I fear is that uh, people see paddleboarding and they see the sunsets on all social media and all of that sort of stuff, and then they get their board and they take it down and they get really frustrated that they can't stand up on the board. They keep falling in. And they don't look like everyone else on all, all of the sort of social media posts, so they end up getting dispirited with it. 
So, so there was something that you discussed in there, which um, has got a rather long name, I'm afraid, but people will bear with us, which is neuroplasticity. And as a concept, it works in terms of therapy and it also works in terms of learning. And essentially what it is, is um, a revelation, I think, that came out of some of that imaging, that the brain works in a very similar way to um, if you're bodybuilding. So if you're applying weight to a muscle uh, over over time and you overload it, then that muscle sort of starts to firm up and, and, and develop. And it's exactly the same for the brain. So really, in terms of learning on a paddleboard, it's about spending time on the water and embracing the fact that everyone falls in, particularly during that, that early stage. And I guess for therapy as well and all of the stuff that you just talked about in terms of... Um, the flotation therapy it's about switching from that stress state to a more relaxed state and then that then sort of develops different areas of the brain to improve those sorts of connections and uh, i guess that constitutes therapy yeah you know i i think to, to really understand that 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 process of learning new things and and pushing through and in, in persistence um in neuroplasticity that you mentioned uh, it's important to understand that your brain generally is looking for shortcuts and easy ways to do things. Like your your brain is a a pattern recognition machine, and it's a it's an organ of habit. So you're 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 naturally more comfortable in places of where you're familiar and where you know how to do things and where it's easy. And when you go out of that comfort zone. And try to learn a new language, or learn a new skill, or learn to paddleboard. Uh, it's hard. It feels, you know, it, it feels bad, sort of. And your brain's going, oh, I don't know how to do this. What is this move? And what is this thing in my hands? And wow, what about these waves? And my legs aren't really doing the right thing. So it's really easy to give up, you know. Uh, or day one of learning Spanish, mm. or if I, I put a violin in your hand, you go, wow that sounds terrible. I don't want to make that noise tomorrow. So I, I give up. And, the, you know, it's understandable, but you know, your brain likes the patterns and it likes the routine and it likes the familiar. And it's because it's, it's easier and more efficient. So just notice that, recognize, okay, brain, that, I know what you're doing, uh, but we're not going to do that today. We're not doing easy today. And we're not doing habits today. We're doing something new. And so, you know, that's just recognizing that that's, that's what's going on. And that the discomfort is, is growth. And the discomfort is you laying down new neural pathways. And, and that requires some effort and some persistence and some time. Um, also, you know, falling in is my favorite part. <laughs> I like being in the water. So even if the water is cold, I like being in it. So when I've taken people out uh, to learn the paddleboard, and not that I'm a, a great instructor, but I, I find myself sometimes with people who are learning these things, and I just happen to know a little more. Um, I point that out. I say, you know, you're going to fall in. I promise. Mm -hmm. And that's the best part. So laugh and giggle and climb back up and then fall in again. And, uh, you know, you see people doing these yoga moves on, on these paddle boards and you think, wow, I, I want to do that. That's, that's amazing. I guarantee you they fall, 
they've fallen so many times, you know, before they, they learned how to do a, a, a handstand on a paddleboard. I mean, you, they've been in the water, um, falling out of that handstand. So it's, um, it's just part of it and mm. just, you know, embrace the, embrace the fall and the fail and every single, and then when you sleep on it, your brain consolidates and it trims and it prunes and does activity while you're asleep. And then you come back the next day and sometimes somehow you feel like you got better while you were asleep. And then your, your brain has kind of started to rewire and it, it feels, if you feel a little more confident. And so now paddling is easy and you want to start doing some new moves and take it to the next level. And, uh, and now your brain has taken that new activity called paddleboarding and it's become more efficient and it's turned that into a new habit. And then now you don't even have to think about pulling a paddle through the water while standing on a board. You can start to think of the next thing, the next level of skill, and it becomes automatic. And it's just remarkable to, to see it happening in yourself. Um, you know, we, we did a lot of it when we were little. Perhaps every week we learn something new about the world and whether it's how to climb or how to run or how to ride a bike. Or, um, and then as we get older, we, we tend, tend to stay on the same track for years, uh, especially during a pandemic, you know, uh, maybe you stayed in the same room literally for months. And, uh, so it gets even harder to really break out and, and that, um, doing new things, you know, takes more effort. Um, but that's, that's just part, part of it. You know, you push through it, keep practicing, hang out with supportive people who, you know, can give you some tips and, and just keep learning. And there are plenty of other disciplines out there as well to to um, to, to push your standards. Um, surfing, downwinding, even sup polo. I haven't tried that yet, but that's uh, <laughs> like that's a recipe for falling in. But forward to that. So originally, I'd planned to do four points. I don't think we're going to make it all the way through them. But but the other, the second one, the, the the really critical one, I did want to talk to you about obviously talks to all your activities and you know one of the key purposes of the book is something that I've observed amongst stand-up paddlers which is an increasing desire to be proactive to clean up and, and manage waterways to to agitate about water contamination to, to pick up plastics from riverbanks and harbours and it seems to have spawned a, a huge involvement on of paddlers on a whole variety of different initiatives. And I think obviously there's the thing that people start to care about things they, they spend time exposed to. And obviously we've already said for, for SUP, you know, you see the world from a, a whole different angle. Um, you know, you don't see it from the land and that means that plastic bottles and litter and stuff like that, which is otherwise invisible, is, is suddenly totally visible and it's messing up the environment that that you love and, and you enjoy and i guess that's one of the main drivers to um to want to protect it so that's again a natural connection with something we we love and i, I think in in your book you mentioned about being a water warrior and clearly you've got a marine biologist background so you've got a a real interest in that and you would have seen that firsthand 
through your 20 years studying turtles and your everyday exposure to water yeah there's a there's a, a really powerful regenerative feedback loop that happens when when you know, blue mind is kind of in the mix and you know if we if we rely solely on fear and guilt to motivate people uh, to do the right thing we're we're not going to get there and if, if we rely solely on just factoids you know here here's data so therefore do the right thing that we've we've shown that doesn't doesn't get the results we need so telling people you know the, the world is covered you know three quarters of the world's covered with water it provides uh, protein and it provides oxygen and uh, regulates climate and holds biodiversity Those, that's all true and i i find it fascinating and important um, but it's it doesn't motivate people to really get out there and fix things. But when you add to to that list um, that it's healing, that it it might be your best friend for life. Uh, it's a source of creativity. It's a, it's a source of romance. Um, it will help the people you love feel better. It, uh, it's a place to go to to grieve and mourn. Um, that that pulls at the heart, all of those things, and they're true. And it compels us to want to be uh, protectors and water warriors. And so when we we tell a better water story and create a more robust value equation that doesn't undervalue the water, but it you know accurately depicts it then i think what we see is people caring more and acting more and going out and doing cleanups and voting for cleaner water voting for fixing pipes that go to the wrong place mm. and there's this regenerative feedback loop that results from really telling telling a better water story and i you know school kids learn the water cycle but what's missing from the water cycle that we learn um, is us. You know, we learn about evaporation, we learn about rainfall, we learn about snowfall and the rivers and how it goes back into the aquifers and cycles around and around and around. And it's a beautiful thing. But we're missing from that story. So I, I think we need to just update the water cycle that's that's taught to school children to include that this extra piece that is us interacting with water and feeling whole and feeling good and feeling in love and um, feeling our brains work better and feeling connected and feeling like we're at home, um, feeling soothed. And uh, there's just a long list of things we feel uh, wouldn't it be great if we taught that to school kids so that they just knew it, that it became common knowledge and common practice for 8 billion humans to really get this thing. And I think that would lead to better health for humanity and a healthier planet uh, through this just regenerative feedback loop that we see. I mean, you see it, I see it. I imagine everybody listening has not only seen it, but been part of it. So how do we get what we know here and what we're talking about 
into the, the minds and the hearts of everybody, literally. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're human and you're on this little blue planet called Earth, you need to understand, have access to, and practice blue mind for yourself and for each other. So that's kind of what we're up to, really, is you know that that connection between the, the environment and ourselves via water. But um, one of the other four topics, the aloha effect, the social aspect goes right alongside with that. You know, you're, when you feel awe and wonder, um, we've learned from the researchers who study awe and wonder that we, our, our empathy and our compassion increases. And one of the greatest sources of awe and wonder on this planet is water in all of its forms. So think about that. Well, when you get to access the water and you experience awe and wonder, it grows your empathy and compassion, and then you connect more with each other and the place you live and yourself, for that matter. Empathy for yourself, empathy for each other, and, and compassion for nature. Um, water can help provide that. So, you know, all four of those pillars that you describe are are sort of activated. Um, and they, they light up, I guess you could say Mm. more when we're, when we're interacting with the water. Well, I'm I'm really glad I didn't hallucinate the aloha factor because I've been talking about that for quite, (laughs) quite some time, but I definitely see it in the sport. And, and on this podcast, we particularly welcome innovation and and certainly your, your book was, was one of a kind, but also the way you described the best way to communicate the, the need for action. And you've, used a whole bunch of innovative ways of engaging people and focusing on the on the joy of the environment rather than just being depressing and and fearful about you know how things are going which I think far too many do and I and I totally agree with you it doesn't engage people at at all so there's various different uh, initiatives you, you have kicked off and and continue so let's just go through some of them here so um we've got blue marbles would you just like to talk a bit about that yeah um it's a little over a decade ago i um, noticed that the the water and ocean story that we were telling was very very sad (laughs) and there was a lot of fear and a lot of guilt in it and i'm just trying to think of a way to kind of break that pattern and given a talk at at the New, new england aquarium and i got some blue marbles from the toy store and I gave them out as people came in and um, figured out during my talk what I was going to say about them. And basically it, it, it was, this is a gift. Thank you for doing good things. Um, pass it on, pass your glass, recycled glass, blue marble on to someone that you know who is doing good things. Say thank you to them and ask them to pass it on and so on and so forth. And I didn't know if it would resonate or work, but I got more feedback from that particular lecture than, I, than I'd ever had before. People had great stories. They, they sent notes and said, I, thank you. I passed it on to so-and-so and they passed it on to their friend. And so I thought, I'll, I'll keep giving out blue marbles. So now we've given out a million or more and Others have given out marbles, and it's just a, a nice gesture uh, of gratitude rather than fear and guilt. 
um, and they've been passed through tens of millions of hands, uh, all corners of the globe, um, celebrities and rock stars and activists and advocates and paddlers and swimmers and explorers, kids, lots of kids, uh, artists. And it, it's just kind of, I guess you could say it's gone a bit viral, mm. but it's just really simple. It's, you know, it's playful. Um, it's not virtual. There's not a digital, you don't give people a, a digital marble, you give them a real one and there's a weight to it. And they're, they're quite beautiful little spheres. And, um, there's an alchemy that happens. It's a, it's really a penny's worth of recycled glass that when you receive it from someone, um, with that message becomes valuable. So just the story that's put behind it makes this valueless object for some people. It's like their favorite thing all of a sudden because it has this meaning. So that's fascinating as well. You know, back to like the switching the value equation in the water story, you know, the alchemy of that, um, is kind of the marble has become a symbol of, of this conversation, but also the caring and the alchemy of it. And so there they are. It's just out there. Uh, if you have received one, um, pass it on. If you'd like a bag of them to give to your, your crew and to have this conversation, they're easy to find. You know, they're just blue glass marbles. Um, and uh, there's a, a woman named Lizzie in the UK that's easy to find. She's got a bunch. You She's need, been on the show. Help. She's yeah. been on the show. season. <laughs> She's wonder, wonderful. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, incredible and, and incredible innovation. And, and I do want to talk about Billion Baby Turtles and obviously mm-hmm. Blue Mind Day as well. But before we get to that, that there's a book which you have written, a, a children's book, which is being released uh, on, I think, August the 9th. And while it doesn't necessarily talk about water, it does talk about the effect of damage on the um, climate and and certainly some of the, the symptoms of that and again just a, a very innovative way of passing a message on there could you just sort of explain the book and the circumstances that led to it sure yeah the, the um so summer 2000 august uh, 2000 um, mid pandemic uh, we had a, a catastrophic wildfire came through our our part of the world and it was set off by a um, uh, beautiful storm it created uh, 10,000 dry lightning strikes on the land and started over 600 fires and one of those fires took our home and all of our stuff and um, that in itself was you know, beyond tricky uh, but our, our daughter had left for college the day before and um, to start her freshman year in university. And I needed to call and let her know that, you know, everything that she called home was gone and um, couldn't really speak very, very well because it was just a, a tough thing, tough thing to talk about. And she was crying and I was crying on the phone. And so I wrote her a letter and told her what I, what I was thinking and 
that that letter has has formed the basically the the backbone of of this children's book um and basically the message to her was that her 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 house did its job it it grew her up we built it around her uh it was a joyful place with a lot of visitors and a lot of music and good food and chickens and pets and things and um it did its job it got her got her to adulthood and now she's off exploring and and the message is that we carry our home with us even though that a house may be gone and um i think i think the message has resonated with people because uh loss and grief are inevitable and especially the past two years everybody's lost loved ones um some people have lost their homes for even financial reasons some people have lost their plans or their dream or their job uh, or all of those things and we all need to kind of figure out how how to manage that loss and and grief and so i, th- I think my the note that i wrote to my daughter grace um uh, could help other kids and even adults and so it comes out as a book um, with beautiful illustrations yeah. um drew drew beckmeyer's illustrator and he's just a talented guy and he captured the captured the storm and the fire but also the the love that was in our home um when it stood and um you know the he he created this the final illustration is is this image of of my daughter um with a backpack on standing on a hill overlooking the sea and then her shadow is is shaped like a the shadow of a of a house and it's very subtle and it's really really just so smart of him to just he just really really got it and um i just love that image it's sort of the suggests that her you know her home is still in this girl's exploring and put her her stuff on her back and now she's going exploring um around the world which in fact she is and um and then her shadow the shadow throne is is in the shape of a house with legs yeah. so it's, it's cute um it's a cracking book so and, I, and i i heard you sort of reading sections from it on on npr and it's just incredibly um, emotional piece of writing and um, certainly the, the um, sort of illustrations are, are incredibly powerful but another sort of example of, of being innovative and and um you know communicating and sharing um, things that you know is a common experience as you say with everyone um so that there's probably far too well there's definitely far too much to, to talk about with you and sort of bring things um to an end but what i'd I'd also like to finish on is Blue Mind Day because 23rd of July, Saturday, 23rd of July, 2022 is Blue Mind Day. Could you just tell us a bit about that and, and the purpose of Blue Mind Day? Yeah, you know, it it seems like everything's got its day. You know, there's a world hot dog day or, you know, world best friend day. And, and it seems appropriate that there's world Blue Mind Day and you know, we have World Ocean Day and, and we have World Water Day, um, but World Blue Mind Day is really all about kind of what we were just talking about. It get to your water, wherever you are, whatever form the water is in, and take somebody with you. 
and that's what we will all do on on July 23rd each year. And for all of the reasons we've been talking about, the, the emotional health, the social well-being, um, that regenerative kind of feedback loop, the physical wellness. Um, and we all know we all know someone who might be a bit sad or a bit tired or a bit burnt out. Um, who hasn't moved much <laughs> through this pandemic or who just needs it. And, or maybe their, their paddle boards gotten dusty. Um, so we all know that person and we know their name. We know where they live. Uh, go get them on world blue mind day and any day really, but we're highlighting it on this day, go get them and get them out with you. And so basically a um, world blue mind day is not just, asking you to do the thing you love to do, but do the thing you love to do with someone who needs to do it with you. And it's, it's as simple as that. And if you feel like sharing your story, go for it, you know, immortalize it in some form, take a photo or a video or sing about it, uh, tweet about it. If you're into that, um, a post on Instagram or whatever social media you use, but it isn't about that. It isn't about clicks or, quite the opposite really um so share your story in any way you want um and just join us and you know the goal is to get a get a whole bunch of people out there on at the water uh and get them to bring some new folks to this so mm -hmm. paddleboarding is your thing and it seems likely that if you're listening here it may be um grab an extra board and get somebody on it that maybe has never done it or you know, get a, get a kid out there or, um, or have them join you on your board. You know, if they're, if their mobility is limited. Um, uh, so that's, that's really what it's about. And it's July 23rd. Jay, thanks so much for joining us. The book Blue Mind is still available. It's been released for eight years, but still as popular as ever at all good booksellers in a multitude of languages. And Blue Mind Day is the 23rd of July. Um, Jay, we're going to link everything we possibly can in the show notes. But uh, where could people find out more about you and Blue Mind? Well, you know, the best way is probably just to do a quick search and type the words Blue Mind in quotes, plus whatever word you're interested in, and then see, see what you find. So if you're interested in, in, in paddling, in SUPS, if you're interested in diving, if you're interested in therapy, um, if you're interested in hospice or children, um, just throw those words together and do a search and you'll find um, lots of, of good stuff to read and, and learn. Um, I tend to not direct people to, to my, my website or my social media because, frankly, it's not that interesting. Uh, you, you'll be better served by doing a, a broader, broader search for for this idea and the thing that you're interested in. So um, give that give that a, a shot. Um, but if you need to find me, I'm, I'm easy to find too. Jay, thanks so much again. It's been fantastic talking to you, and uh, hopefully, we might catch up on the water sometime. Yes, indeed. Hopefully. Yeah, thank you so much. Really great conversation. Really appreciate everything that you're you're doing over there and, and let's yeah, let's battle. <laughs>